epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 7. We're reading verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word and we confess this morning once again that it is a gift. God, we come as dependent and weak servants We need your grace. We need that grace in daily life, and we need that grace in understanding what you have revealed to us. And so, God, we ask that you would send out your light and that you would send out your truth and that they would lead us to you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, when I first moved to Christ Church, we were working on rebranding the church, and this involved a new series of bulletins and some different documents that we were producing. We were a little short-staffed at that point, and so I purchased the Adobe Suite. Some of you may be familiar with that. I was not. It was a series of programs that helped with publication. I was untrained, but am fairly stubborn and determined, and I was going to work my way through it. And so by some brute force, I muscled myself through a design and layout process. I'm not boasting about any of the particular artful qualities of it. It's not what you currently see in front of you. Obviously, it was replaced. But after some significant effort, it felt like I was working harder than I really should, so I consulted a friend who had some expertise in using these programs. And so he asked to see my computer, and I handed it over to him. He was looking through, and he began to note some things. And the first thing he noted about my design was that I was indeed working harder than I needed to, that there were certain things that the program was capable of doing, and I was not using that full capacity. For instance, instead of using the tab button and setting a tab, I was hitting the space bar five times, then 10 times, and sometimes 15 (laughs) times. And then he also began to note something else, that when you buy the Adobe Suite, there's a cloud, and you download the program, and then you access it. And I had only downloaded a few programs. Though I had bought it, and though I owned it, and though all of the things in the cloud were mine, I was only using a select portion of it. And he explained to me that these things also, if I would just simply download them, would be a benefit to me. And so there it was. 
everything was in my grasp to make that publication process so much easier to facilitate my life, but I simply wasn't appropriating it. I wasn't using it. And what we've seen from the Apostle Paul over the past three chapters, in chapters 5, 6, and now into chapter 7, is an argument to convince us of everything that is properly ours through Jesus Christ. That when we are baptized into him, when we have believed in him, that united to him, there are a series of benefits that belong to us. And Paul argues with us. And God is arguing with us today that we consider those benefits and that we know how to appropriate them in faith, that they not simply lie dormant, that he wants us to apply them, that he wants us to delight in them, that he wants us to use them. In chapter 5, we discovered that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that we have a righteousness that's not our own. That this guarantees and establishes our standing with God. That this is God's gift to us when we're united to his son. In chapter 6, we discover that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, not only do we have a right standing with God, but we're also freed from the controlling power of sin. That is, we've been liberated from tyranny. We've been liberated from Egypt. And we have been freed to walk out of the realm and dominion of sin, that this too is God's gift. And here in chapter 7, Paul picks up a theme. It's a theme that he alludes to in verse 14 of chapter 6, and now he is going to explain it. But the words were simply, we are not under law, but under grace, that this too is a benefit. This is part of the suite of belonging to Jesus. And so now he seeks to explain this because what God desperately wants to do, what he presses on us today, is that for you and I, that we know everything that belongs to us in Jesus. And so Paul begins with a rhetorical question in verse 1. He says, do you not know that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? It can then be slightly confusing because verses 2 and 3, he uses an illustration from the law about marriage. And the point of this illustration is that the law binds people until death. And so the marriage illustration is just that the woman is bound to her husband until the husband dies. Then she's free to remarry. But the point that Paul is driving after is that death affects a decisive change in our relationship to the law. This is what he wants us to see and to learn from it. And then when we arrive in verse 4, this is the point of everything that he's going after. He announces that you and I, because of the death of Jesus, now have a changed relationship to the law. Just like the woman was freed from the law by the death of the husband, We have been freed from the law by the death of Jesus. We are no longer held captive by it. And so this morning, if we are to appreciate everything that is ours, everything that Jesus has done for us, everything that he gives us when we're joined to him, there's four senses in which we've been freed from the law that we'll consider. 
We'll consider first what it means to be freed from the law's shadow. We'll then consider what it means to be freed from the law's condemnation. Then we'll consider what it means to be freed from the law's misuse, because that happens too. And finally, what it means to be freed from the law's weakness. So let's consider each of these. First, we're freed from the shadows of the law. In the first century, there was a lively theological debate rifling through the church. At times, we can have perhaps an idealistic view of the early church and think that's when things were really happening, but I can promise you that that wasn't the case. There were tensions and there were debates and there was ferocious argument at times. And one of those arguments that really disturbed the early church that the Apostle Paul has to address again and again is this thing about the observance of the Mosaic law. See, many Jewish Christian converts believed that to be justified, to be put in right relationship with God, required that you put your faith in Jesus and also that you observe the Mosaic law. This observance included the ceremonial laws that God had given to Israel, and those laws were considered to be shadows. They were shadows of the Messiah who was yet to come. But even though Jesus had come, some of these early Jewish Christians were contending that the ceremonial laws needed to continue to be observed. This included things like circumcision, It included things like the Jewish Sabbath, Saturday, the temple ritual, sacred days, food laws. John Calvin explains for us that the shadows, the way to understand that, is that the shadows are like rough graphite sketches that an artist makes prior to painting. Before the full color is applied, that the painting is sketched out. And friends, this is what the ceremonies of the Jewish law were graphite sketches that were directing Israel in the time of their infancy to the fulfillment that was to come. And Paul's point here is that those shadows have now been fulfilled, that those shadows have reached their goal, that they have expired their purpose, that they were pointing and directing us to Jesus. And now that he has come, They're no longer necessary. And so you ask, how? The answer lies in verse 4. You have died to the law through the body of Christ. That in Jesus' death, he brings to fulfillment all of that ceremonial observance. And he brings it to completion. Jesus has fulfilled all that the ceremonial law promised. And so to observe these ceremonial laws to act as if they must be kept, is actually to obscure Jesus' fulfillment of them. It takes away from them. And friends, we've been freed from this, that those ceremonial laws are no longer necessary and some of the burdens that accompanied them. But not only have we been freed from those ceremonial shadows, the second thing we find in this is that we've also been freed from the condemnation of the law. Due to our sin and our rebellion against God, the law, and particularly the Ten Commandments, or what we call the moral law, functions as a mirror or a flashlight. It's not a place that we particularly are fond of looking. 
because this mirror and this flashlight is penetrating. It's light that discerns and it cuts us in two. It clarifies and reveals. Perhaps last night you were woken up around three o'clock with the tremendous thunderstorm that rolled through the area. I was, went to get a drink of water. And as I passed by my bedroom door, I saw an interrogating light coming through the crack. In my half slumber, I didn't know what to expect. I opened my bedroom door ready to destroy what was ever on the other side. And there's my daughter with a flashlight right in my face. (laughs) Scared to death. And friends, this is what the law of God is like. It interrogates us. It confronts us. It exposes us. It reveals and it clarifies. Because when it meets our sinful flesh, when it comes to us in our condition, there's no place for us to hide. It reveals our unrighteousness. It shows just who we are. And the law always stubbornly resists those who attempt to turn it into an external code that they can manage. The Pharisees are, of course, famous for this. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains that the law penetrates down into our secret thoughts, our secret desires, our secret motives, the true loves that animate us. And in doing so, as we encounter the true and living law of God, it reveals our half-hearted affections for God. It reveals our self-centered orientation. It reveals our quest to build and construct a life independent of God, the sin of all sins. It reveals our distaste for seeking the good of our neighbor and disadvantaging ourselves in order to advantage them. Yes, this is the painful work of the law. It bruises, it exposes, it interrogates And what it finally does is it informs us of our condemnation. A condemnation that we have justly deserved because of our disobedience and disregard for God. That we don't want to listen to his voice. But Paul's word here, what he wants to convince you of, is that from this condemnation you too have been freed. How? Once again, the simple words of verse 4, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You have died to the law's condemnation, to the ferociousness of that condemnation, the completeness of that condemnation. You've died to that, that it was destroyed in the death of Jesus, that when Jesus died, he died for you in your place, receiving your death and condemnation and judgment in his own body. Paul reminds us of this in Galatians 3, verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And this is the freedom from condemnation. Jesus takes all of that condemnation that results from our disobedience, and he does it so that our condemnation would be destroyed and forgotten. But this is the benefit of being freed from the law. Third, we see that we're also freed from the misuse of the law. 
one of the other things going on in the early church is that there were those who believed that by the performance of the law, the possession of it and the performance of it, that we could please God and place a claim on God. The law was a way of gaining right standing with God and was critical to that. It's important for us to appreciate that this wasn't the original intent. This is not how God designed the law. Law always begins in grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. This was a perversion. It was a misunderstanding of it. But frequently it's easy for us to skip over that. We don't really look into what's happening here. And we're prone to do so because in relating to the law in that way, it tends to get some external results. When we use the law in order to try to gain an acceptance with God, it can create certain external factors that we can feel good about and perhaps boast before others. And sometimes we like to feel like we have a boast before God. One of the critical things for you and I to appreciate about that type of misuse of the law, even though it's dressed in all kinds of religion, that what the Bible explains to us is that misuse of the law is an evidence of our sinful rebellion against God. That just as that rebellion looks certain ways for some, that this is how that rebellion takes shape for many who inhabit the church. It's an expression of our desire to be independent from God. It's an expression of our desire to put a claim on God. And that's not the way that human beings can ever relate to God. All is a gift of grace from Him. And we can't construct and erect a righteousness that He then must answer. It doesn't work that way. Charles Cranfield, commentator on the book of Romans, captures it well. Listen carefully to what he says. Challenged by the law, that is when we meet the claims of the law. Challenged by the law which claims man for God and for his neighbor. Man's self-centeredness, the sinful ego, recognizes that it is being called into question and attacked. And so that sinful ego seeks all the more furiously to defend itself. And friends, when we are freed from the condemnation of the law, when we're no longer under it, we're freed from this abuse of the law, this misuse of it. It has plagued the church from the very first century all the way till today. It's never intended to be this, but our sinful minds turned it into a a way of constructing an independent path with God. And it's over. You're free from it. You don't submit to teaching that advocates it. You don't submit to those sub-biblical notions of grace that God has something that is rich and full for you. This is what he's done in Jesus And so you're free never to submit to it. But finally here, we also see that we're free from the weakness of the law. And this is Paul's primary argument that he's going to take into the early part of chapter 8. 
See, because due to our sinfulness, the sinfulness that lives inside of you and inside of me, the the law not only reveals and identifies sin, but it also does something else. It also induces and incites, it encourages and arouses sin in us. That is, the law actually complicates your problem with sin. This is what Paul argues here. Follow with me in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Many people then think, well, then is the law sin? And Paul's actually going to ask that question, and we'll look at it next week. He affirms that the law is spiritual, that it's holy, just, and good. But sin attaches to the law and uses it takes advantage of the moment, and sin grows and increases. It's aroused, it's induced, it's encouraged, it's incited. And so the law imprisons us. It holds us captive, he says in verse 6. We can't escape it. But through the death of Jesus, we're told that we're released from the weakness of the law. This is the language Paul uses in verse 3 of chapter 8, that we've been released from that weakness and we're now joined to him so that we can bear fruit for God. That is not being held captive, not in disobedience, but now that we are joined to him, that we can bear fruit for God that's pleasing to him. And so in the argument, Paul makes a contrast between two things in verse 6. He makes the contrast between the spirit and then the written code, or probably better translated, the letter. Listen to what he says. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And it's pivotal for us to see that he's not here somehow disparaging the law, the letter, the written code. But he goes on, because he goes on to explain that the law is spiritual, that it is holy and just and good. And he does that in verses 11 and 12 and 14. But the contrast that he's drawing out here is a contrast between our relationship to the law before and after our conversion. That is prior to our regeneration by the Spirit and after that regeneration by the Spirit. And so, yes, we are released from the, le- from the law as a letter. That is, we're released from the bare law. That is, the law without the Spirit. When it can only convict us, when it can only expose us, when it can only reveal to us all of our unrighteousness. But you see, we're also not done with the law. We're freed from that bare function of the law in which it reveals and convicts. But no, now we serve God in the Spirit. And if you remember back all the way to chapter 2 and verse 15, where Paul is speaking of these Christian Gentiles who were evidencing the work of the law in their hearts. Why? Because of the work of the Spirit is to write this moral law in the heart of the believer. And so the believer freely, under the compulsion of the Spirit, 
begins to find their life directed in this fashion and in accord with God's will. And friends, this is what we've been freed into. We're freed to walk out from Egypt, from the harsh master that we saw last week, who calls for us to construct more bricks and gives us less and less straw. It's not a pleasing situation. We're now freed from that, and we're called to the promised land, and we're en route. And en route, we face many dangers and many temptations, and there are days in which we think it's better to return to Egypt, that life is more satisfying there. And what God puts in front of us in the midst of that journey, in all the ardor and difficulties that that journey involves, is to meditate upon this truth. This truth presented to us in verse 4. That you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. He wants us to call on that in faith, to actualize it, to appropriate it, to apply it in the midst of that journey. To say to God in the midst of our deep struggles with sin, whose presence is still with us, that I have died to this, and so free me from it, and may I continue on the way. And friends, this is the dynamic of the Christian life, to be freed from the law, from the bare functions of it that only condemns us, and to be freed by the Spirit into the law, written upon the heart. In my mid-30s, I found myself in a deep and pretty desperate struggle with sin. Things that were well hidden, things that I could paper over, things that I can blame on others. It was a resentment and a lack of forgiveness for some things that had taken place. And I found myself brewing on these things. And those things didn't just remain there, but they began to seep into and leak into every other compartment of my life. And it was through a conversation with my mentor, Tim, in which he served the function of the law for me, reminding me of the sinfulness that I was participating in and doing so, and the way that resentment and that anger was taking shape in my life, and how if I didn't take a good look at that, that I was going to find myself stuck. And so friends, left in that place, it was dark and it was difficult. What was I going to do with all this? What was I going to do with the lack of apologies? What was I going to do with the things that were said and done? How was I going to tolerate that? And it's these truths in the book of Romans that began to so slowly soften and break up that hard ground. That began to awaken my soul to the fact that God had something better for me. That there was a way out. That yes, in many ways, in all of my self-righteousness, I had returned to Egypt and was saying it was better there. I wanted to hold on to all these sins. I wanted to delight in them. But the truth of the promise came breaking in. The truth is just simply this, that you have died to the law through the body of Christ. That you're freed from that. You're freed from those passions of sins that are holding you captive. 
and you're free now to bear fruit for God. And Chuck, God has something better for you. He has a richer and fuller life for you. And this is the way that Paul argues with us and that God is pleading with you and with me today is that we would walk out of the Egypt in which we live and the way that sin finds itself present in our lives and that we would be free to bear fruit for him. He's liberated you towards that end. And so don't miss all of this freedom. He's freed you from those shadows of the law. He's freed you from the condemnation, the judgment that the law brings into our lives. He's freed you from the misuse of the law and all the ways that the church and religious people can get it wrong. And then he's freed you from the weakness of the law, the bare law, what it couldn't do by giving you his spirit to set you at liberty and freedom. And so appropriate all of that. That's what your God has for you. Let's pray for his help. Father, we do confess and acknowledge all of our weakness. And we're astounded today by all of the gift that you've given and that you have freed us from the dominion of law. And so write these things upon our hearts. Teach us these truths that we have indeed been freed from the law's shadows. and They've been fulfilled in Jesus. That we've been freed from condemnation, freed from the misuse of the law, and we've been freed from its weakness by your spirit. And so God, allow us to live and to walk in the freedom of your spirit that comes through your son. We pray in his name. Amen.